This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. The U.S. Supreme Court recently heard arguments both for and against President Obama's health care reform initiative, known as the Affordable Care Act. The provision at the center of the legal debate, known as the individual mandate, requires all adults to buy health insurance either through their employers or by buying it themselves. Knowledge at Wharton talked with Wharton professor Scott Harrington about the possible outcomes of the court case, the potential implications for businesses and consumers, and ongoing questions about how to improve the country's health care system. Um, first of all, I'd like to talk to you about the key provision of this law, or what has seemed to have sparked the most debate, is known as the individual mandate, which requires all adults to buy health insurance either through their employers or by buying it themselves. Could you talk to me a little bit about your views on this on this provision? Well, views reflect uh, one's attitude towards whether it's constitutional and then the attitude towards the economics. I primarily have considered the economics of a mandate. And in principle, a mandate can help overcome a free rider problem where people might not buy health insurance and then they go get care in emergency rooms or other contexts for which they can't pay. And to some extent, the costs of that care may be shifted to other parties. So any economist says, in principle, if you force people to buy health insurance, you can reduce that problem. When you unpack, though, a mandate in practice, If you're going to have a mandate, you have to mandate that people buy something, and you have to specify the characteristics of what they have to buy. So it necessarily involves a considerable degree of government control over the underlying features of the insurance contract, which in this case extends the federal government into defining the underlying features of an acceptable insurance contract in all states, in contrast to our historical practice where the states have basically had most responsibility for making any kinds of determinations about health insurance. The other things that I find questionable about a mandate, one would be it's widely recognized that enforcement is likely to be imperfect. The mandate included in the Affordable Care Act, the enforcement has several features that would light likely make enforcement less than perfect, including provisions in the law that say they're not going to really go after people that don't pay the penalties. The other thing related to enforcement is that the penalties themselves are quite small. They start out really small. Now, to be sure, after three or four years, it'll be $695 for an individual, up to 2.5% of a person's income, and family penalties will be greater than that. But the penalties themselves might be relatively modest, so as a practical matter, some people will avoid the mandate. The The other thing that's really important about the mandate enforcement and penalties, however, is I don't think anybody believes that we can have a law that says people have to buy medical insurance without providing extensive subsidies or exemptions to people or low penalties so that people with of modest means, who predominantly are people who do not buy health insurance, don't really get hammered by the imposition of the mandate. So if you circle back then to this free rider problem, the fact that people don't buy insurance, they may get care that other people pay for, my impression is that cost is relatively modest. And when you fold in what the law has done in terms of stipulating the mandate, the cost of subsidies, which will be paid by somebody, taxpayers in general, are going to be much greater than any uh, benefit from reducing uncompensated care if you just look at the dollars. The other thing that the mandate involves as part of the overall law is that we're going to very much limit insurance companies' ability to, say, set rates based on age, which will, in effect, require younger people to pay much more for insurance than they would without the mandate because of these rating restrictions under the law. So to some extent, we're going to fund this subsidy delivery system. We're going to fund this procedure that's designed to get more people to have coverage by having young people face higher premiums than what they would if we remain, if we stayed with the status quo. To be sure, many young people will be eligible for subsidies. So now they're going to face a product where they may get a premium subsidy, but they're facing a premium that, apart from any subsidy, is higher 
perhaps significantly higher than what they would pay without this law. And overall, that tax subsidy package, the way that works, I think, is much more complicated and problematic compared to the simple view that if we mandate something, we can overcome this free rider problem. And what is your opinion of the overall of the Affordable Care Act, sort of getting away from the mandate? I actively participate in, in writing op-eds during the debate over the law, and I published numerous op-eds where I explained why I thought specific parts of the law were not in the public interest and that we could take an alternative incremental approach to improve health care before moving in a fairly compre comprehensive direction as we did with the Affordable Care Act. The, the package that I believe would be appropriate if we change the Affordable Care Act, we get rid of the Affordable Care Act, would rely more on altering the system to improve incentives for consumers to consider uh, the cost of their care, to shop for coverage, to be able to choose among insurance policies, and similar market-driven, market-oriented changes. Now, speci just specifically, I think most people agree we needed to do something to improve the portability of insurance coverage for people that have insurance, say, at work, and then they lose their jobs or they want to change jobs, and there's only an imperfect, there's an imperfect mechanism for such people to be able to get coverage without being underwritten by an insurance company and thus face possibly high premiums for having adverse health conditions or, or pre-existing conditions. We could have done, we could do many things to improve portability. One would have been a simple approach would basically have said, if a person has been continuously covered by health insurance, then if they lose coverage at one work site or they somehow lose their coverage, they are able to get coverage without regard to health status and pre-existing conditions. Uh, another thing I think we could have done to target people that for some reason don't get insurance when they're young and then later on decide that they may need insurance or they they want to enter the market, but they have adverse conditions or pre-existing conditions. We could have expanded federal support for state-run high-risk pools that would allow people to get limited coverage, even though they have pre-existing conditions, at rates that protect them from a lot of the increase that they would face in a perfectly private market. A third thing, and I think a lot of economists would agree with this, is we should have focused more attention on the tax code which historically for people in middle to upper brackets has really encouraged them to accept compensation in the form of health insurance rather than the form of cash pay. And over time, the exclusion of the cost of health insurance from taxable income for people with middle and high incomes have encouraged them to load up on health insurance, which provides broad choice and has limited co-payments, deductibles, and the like. And what you're doing with that system is encouraging perhaps the most educated part of the population specifically, the most affluent part of the population, not to choose their health insurance with an even trade-off between health insurance and salary, but to get more health insurance, which discourages them from paying close attention to the costs and increase overall costs. The Affordable Care Act does do something. Beginning in 2018, high-cost plans are going to have to pay a 40% excise tax. I regard that as a step in the right direction. I'm not sure I would have endorsed the specifics. But as an alternative to the Affordable Care Act, there are many proposals that would limit the tax subsidy to health insurance in ways that would encourage people, people that are working with coverage, to consider more carefully whether they want policies with higher deductibles and higher co-payments in exchange for a lower premium. And I believe it would also encourage many workers to be willing to voluntarily choose managed care arrangements such as health maintenance organizations that would have other mechanisms built in to control costs. If you offer someone a significant premium reduction for going into a health maintenance organization where they may need to see a primary care physician before getting access to special Without the t with limits on the tax subsidy, I believe you'll see more voluntary, voluntary choice of those types of arrangements. Now, I would just add to all that, when I view the ta limiting the tax subsidy, there are technical details that can make it tough, but I, th I think it would be very important to try to do that in a tax-neutral way. 
I certainly would not favor eliminating the tax subsidy for health insurance or limiting it if you didn't somehow provide some offsetting reductions in taxes. The short version there is I wouldn't endorse a tax increase without some offsetting uh, reductions of other taxes if we move towards neutralizing the tax treatment of health insurance. Mm Now, what do you see as some of the, I mean, can you talk a little bit about the possible outcomes of the Supreme Court case? And I mean, given each one, where, where would we, where do we go from here? The case, of course, is complicated. There are three main issues. One is whether the law is ripe for adjudication prior to 2014. Another one is whether the expansion of Medicaid inappropriately compels the states to participate. But really, the central issue is the individual mandate and whether it violates the Constitution. I'd be surprised if the decisions that come down really relate to it. I would be stunned if it related to the issue of whether the law is right for adjudication. I'm less certain about what the court will say about Medicaid expansion. Regarding the individual mandate, there are basically four possible outcomes. One is the court says it's constitutional. The entire law stands. The second is the court says the individual mandate is unconstitutional, but they let the remainder of the law stand as it is, including the insurance reforms, community rating, guaranteed issue of coverage, no underwriting for pre-existing conditions, the creation of health insurance exchanges, and the like. A third possible outcome is that the court says we invalidate the individual mandate, and because the insurance reforms are into our integrated with the individual mandate and that the entire package really consists of an integrated whole, they get rid of Title I, which basically is all the insurance reforms, including the insurance exchanges. The fourth possibility, perhaps if they also frown upon the Medicaid expansion, is for them to declare the individual mandate unconstitutional and void the entire act, to basically say that the entire law is inseparable from the individual mandate. I would be surprised, I would, I would say what's likely to happen, I would be more surprised than not if the court allows the individual mandate to stand and just basically says the law is okay. I think there's a good chance of that, but I'm inclined based on reading the transcripts of the court and doing a little bit of court watching like other people do, I'm inclined to think that the court will declare the individual mandate unconstitutional. If they do that, I would be surprised if they declare the entire law unconstitutional. I wouldn't be astounded, but I would, I would basically be surprised. I think given they invalidate the individual mandate, probably what we're going to get is they say, we'll isolate the mandate and everything else stands, or they will get rid of large portions or all of Title I, which is the package of insurance reforms of which the individual mandate would be deemed to be an integral part. So it's sort of in the ranking, I think, the two most likely outcomes are they repeal the mandate and either leave everything else or they repeal the mandate and the related insurance reforms. So, I mean, if they repeal the mandate or repeal the mandate and the related insurance reforms, I mean, what would you say is most likely to happen next? I mean, what needs to happen next? Does Congress and the Obama administration just completely go back to the drawing board? Is there a way to maybe improve what's there? I mean, what, what would you see as where does health care go from here? If the court were to invalidate the individual mandate but leave everything else stand, it's difficult to predict what the Congress might do for obvious reasons, especially given the election, and we might have a change of presidents. If the entire law were to remain but for the mandate, I believe it would be likely that the Congress would take legislative action to reduce some of the adverse effects of having eliminated the mandate. If the mandate is eliminated and everything else is allowed to stand, it will exacerbate the problem that's going to arise with the current law, which is there will be a disproportionate number of people in poor health that will comply with the mandate and seek coverage under the guaranteed issue and community rating of individual coverage. Now, we call that the adverse selection issue. Some people call it a death spiral issue. Because the penalties for noncompliance with the mandate are already low, 
I'm one of the people who thinks there will be a non-trivial amount of adverse selection, which will put upward pressure on premiums in the exchanges and the individual coverage, that there will be strong cost growth because of adverse selection in those markets. The way the subsidies are designed, the federal government will end up picking up a large part of the cost if we do see that disproportionate risk selection and more sick people going into the pools. That will create more strains, obviously, on the federal budget and the deficit. So we already are going to have that problem to some extent. My esteemed colleagues like Mark Pauley and others, some people have said the mandate's so weak that getting rid of it probably won't matter that much. I have to think it'll matter. Uh, I can't quantify how much, but I, I think there's a difference between a penalty that could be 2.5% of one's income and no penalty at all, plus the, the ethical component of some people comply with a government law, an important government law. They don't look just at the penalty and do an economic calculation. So I think if we get rid of the mandate, the adverse selection problem will be worse. I think it probably will create enough concern that if we don't revisit the entire healthcare space, Congress will do something to limit adverse selection which would involve uh, allowing a free a window of opportunity for people to get coverage without being underwritten. And if they don't get coverage within a certain window, maybe they face potentially higher premiums if they have health conditions. There are steps that can be taken to limit the adverse selection. But I think much more importantly in the big picture, if the mandate itself goes, but everything else stands, it makes it more likely that we're going to end up with the overall structure of the law going forward, but for what could happen come November with the election. If the mandate goes and the health insurance reforms go, community rating, pre-existing conditions, uh, limitations on pre-existing conditions, even eliminating the part of the law that would create state-based health insurance exchanges, I think that makes it more likely politically that some sort of overall alternative to the ACA gets legs in the Congress. Clearly, if the Republicans were to get a majority in the Senate and if we had a Republican president, certainly the campaigns are saying that we will do a repeal and replace kind of scenario regardless of what the court does. I think the court's decisions could influence the ultimate, excuse me, the ultimate outcome. Mm -hmm. And given, I mean, are there any initiatives currently in progress or things going on elsewhere that, I mean, you could see as a model, like, in terms of that you think would work well? I mean, if there is going to be some adjustment of the law or even if given what would happen in the election, a complete rejiggering? There have been proposals around for, for many years that I would describe as market-oriented, consumer-centric proposals for, report, for reforming health care. And I talked a little bit about this a few minutes ago. But... No one in the political domain has really put out a hard and fast plan. It's all sort of generic. Uh, these are the broad points, but I think the broad points are good ones and just sort of, sort of to reiterate. One thing is to look at how, protect, how current features of legal environments that don't allow portability of coverage for people that have had continuous coverage do something to allow people that have had coverage if they change jobs to be able to get coverage without facing significantly higher premiums because they've got some adverse health condition. We can do things to greatly improve portability. We've already got laws that enhance portability significantly, but there are gaps. We can close those gaps. The second thing I mentioned is think very carefully about the tax subsidies that exist that are especially pronounced for middle and upper income taxpayers to load up on generous insurance with free choice of providers, which puts strong upward pressure on costs. We can help reduce costs by rationalizing the tax treatment of health insurance and wages to make people more neutral about whether they want more generous health insurance with choice of provider or they're willing to accept some restrictions on choice of provider and greater co-payments for their health insurance in exchange for getting take-home pay. Third thing, I think we do need to look very carefully at targeted areas where we can provide as a nation greater subsidies to people of modest means to get health insurance. Clearly, the Affordable Care Act, that's a major part of the act. There are less intrusive and less costly methods and more targeted methods of, of basically saying, how big do we want the safety net to be? 
how can we provide subsidies that will provide as few distortions as possible for incentives to people to work. But I believe even most conservative uh, members of Congress and people that are running for office would be open-minded to an expansion of the safety net. Now, to be sure, given federal deficit concerns, it's a hard sell and it's hard to think about how are we going to get the dollars. But if the Affordable Care Act were replaced, there is some room to maneuver to simultaneously think, can we provide more help to people with low income in order, in order for them to get health care? Then the fourth thing, again, is people that fall between the cracks end up without insurance, don't have the portability, they don't have continuous coverage, they need insurance, and now they've got a pre-existing condition that's very expensive to insure, have a safety valve in place expanded state level, high risk pools, more federal money for those pools, but it's important to have some sort of penalty if a person waits to get coverage until they really need it. So you can't say we're gonna give you coverage at the same terms and conditions you would get if you were healthy. I, th I don't think that works, but we can provide some overall level of expanded safety nets. Now, the kind of the big picture here, we have a big picture going forward is how do we help control costs and improve quality of care, or at least not reduce quality of care? One philosophical view is to say, if we can engage consumers more in their decisions about their health care and their health insurance, that that will, over time, create incentives that will help control costs, I think that it's worth it to move in that direction to see incrementally. If we try a consumer-oriented model and we get benefits, we can see the benefits working, that would be terrific. If it doesn't work and we continue to have crises after crisis with healthcare, then you can think about more top-down centralized approaches to trying to limit the amount of care that's provided in order to make it affordable. I would just, uh, I would just also add, regardless of how the ACA plays out, we're going to have a met battle over Medicare funding, and we'll probably have a big battle over Medicaid funding. So even if the court allows the ACA to stand, and even if the election doesn't change the dynamics so that there could be a repeal of the law or a substantial modification of the law, sometime during the next two, three, or four, or five years, we are going to have a major debate in the United States about what we should do about Medicare to make it fiscally sustainable over the long run. We're also going to have a major debate about Medicaid and how to make it fiscally sustainable at the federal and the state level over the long run. Those battles are going to be fought with tremendous implications for the future of the country, regardless of how the Affordable Care Act uh, plays out for the courts or in the Congress. Knowledge at Wharton talked with Wharton Professor Jonathan Kolstad. We're going to talk a little bit about um, the U.S. Supreme, the Affordable Care Act, and as the U.S. Supreme Court deliberates about what, it, where it is going to come down in terms of the constitutionality of it. But what I'd like to talk to you about is so a lot of the a lot of the debate on this issue has centered around the so-called individual mandate, the provision mm -hmm. that requires all adults to buy health insurance either through their employers or by buying it themselves. Can you talk a little bit about sort of your views on this provision and sort of your feelings on it? Absolutely. I mean, I think this is ultimately one of the key features of this approach to health reform, which is in the, the Accountable Care Act nationally and then was in Massachusetts previously. Uh, in some ways, it's what makes it a kind of middle of the middle of the road type of policy approach. You know, it's not at the extreme of just having, say, a single payer system, and it's not at the extreme of just saying, well, everyone's in it for themselves, because ultimately it recognizes the relationship between my decision to purchase health insurance or my decision not to purchase health insurance and then go to the hospital if I get sick and the implications for others. It's uh, basically the individual mandate ultimately is uh, it's very similar to a tax in many ways, but basically the simple idea is that if at the end of the day you don't have health insurance, you pay a penalty. And it basically is, is you can think of it, I think, in some ways as kind of a, a nudge towards getting health insurance, right? So at the end of the day, under, you know, depending what the Supreme Court does, if I don't have health insurance, uh, that's still my choice, but I will pay a penalty, uh, potentially and arguably commensurate with sort of some cost I'm imposing on, on others. Um, 
And, but ultimately, I don't have to do it. It's not a mandate in the sense of uh, kind of everyone will be you know, forced to, uh, to do this. Um, and in Massachusetts, a very similar thing occurred. And, and in fact, you did see a big effect on amongst the people who were uninsured. About half of the newly insured were gaining coverage through their actually through their employer. And so one argument there is that what the individual mandate was doing was really just augmenting some underlying value for health insurance. Maybe you know people valued it a fair amount, just not quite enough to to take it up. So say I said, well, every dollar of health insurance I get, you know, ninety cents of it is worth it to me. That's not enough to make that make that trade off. But then you add on the individual mandate, and it kind of puts you over the over the hump, as it were. So I think it's a, it's a new policy tool uh, broadly in, in in the health reform and and health insurance debate. But it's been tried in Massachusetts, and it's obviously a a fairly critical keystone to the national reform. The other big piece uh, on the insurance side are the substantial subsidies, which exist uh, both expansions in, in traditional Medicaid for people uh, under 133% of the poverty line, but then uh, subsidies for insurance uh, gained through the various state health insurance exchanges. And that will go up to 400% of the poverty line. So lots of people um, will have potentially access to some form of subsidy. So those are the kind of two pillars uh, that that really are intended to augment the expansion in, in health insurance. Now, I mean, if the court strikes down the individual mandate or even the whole act, I mean, what would that mean for what would that mean for healthcare going forward? Can I mean, can the bill can other aspects of the act stand without the individual mandate, or if the entire act is struck down? I mean, what does that mean for businesses, for consumers, or even for Congress? And the Obama administration. I think absolutely. This is uh, a critical question, and obviously, uh, one of the fundamental questions, le- from a legal perspective, the Supreme Court is facing is: is can the rest of the statute stand without uh, without the individual mandate in it? And at a very simple level, the individual mandate is very important for facilitating basically pooling in the insurance market. Um, and the problem occurs if, if one of the other key pieces of the ACA is the fact that basically the prohibition on, uh, on pricing based on pre-existing conditions or not offering coverage. And that, of course, is a very popular and potentially very valuable tool. It effectively prevents people from facing the risk of, of becoming reclassified. So right now, uh, it may be that if I get very sick, I can still get health insurance. But if my premiums go up in a, in a, you know, substantially, then I would like to even insure against that. And so if you basically pool everyone, you've uh, improved welfare by overcoming that problem. The issue, uh, the issue is that if you, if you don't have any way to actually get everyone into the pool, and, uh, and you can't price based on pre-existing conditions or by price based on health risk, then in fact, only the sickest people will decide to decide to come into the insurance market, and that can potentially lead to rising premiums and even in the extreme kind of the individual insurance market unraveling. Now, um, there is some evidence for that at, at different state levels, and you have seen, for example, in Massachusetts, when they implemented the individual mandate, you did get healthier people into the pool um, and in fact, they had at baseline, they had uh, basically guaranteed issue and community rating, which ostensibly looked like um, the other pieces of the ACA without the mandate. And they did see um, some reductions in, or the newly insured were, were significantly uh, healthier than the previously insured. So there's some evidence that the insurance market would be, or the, the difficult, there would be difficulties in uh, operating the insurance market in the absence of the individual mandate, but with the existing provisions that limit the ability of insurers to price an underlying risk. Um, the other important piece that I did bring up is the, is the subsidies. You know, it might well be that with very substantial subsidies, you are able to expand insurance coverage substantially uh, and potentially uh, these issues with adverse selection will not be as problematic if you are able to facilitate, you know, for example, a subsidy gets in relatively healthy folks into the into the pools and into the markets. Uh, and it also depends on how insurance exchanges are set up. So that's one key feature which uh, is is in the ACA, but each state is setting up their own health insurance exchange. And how that functions and how that works is going to be really critical to uh, what insurance is available, who signs up, who enrolls, even conditional on kind of the overarching structure which is going which is in the ACA now and will be determined to some degree by the Supreme Court's decision. Um, so on the insurance side, I think it is very fundamental, though arguably there's lots those other provisions can stand in the absence of it. Um, there are also key features that are, I think, 
not the not the focus of the reform, but uh, things like the accountable care organizations and changes to the payments and for delivery of care that arguably are very critical going forward in thinking about new models to address the cost of care, the appropriateness of care, the effectiveness of care um, that potentially are, are largely unrelated or certainly are almost largely unrelated to uh, the expansions in coverage, which are the keystone of this reform. And I think they arguably should be. You know, In the US, we have roughly 50 million uninsured. That's kind of a first order issue of deal, you know, to deal with that. But ultimately, we all know that the growth trajectory of cost relative of healthcare costs relative to GDP is a big issue. And one argument has been to change the incentive to try to deal with that. And there are a number of provisions and demonstration projects and new approaches in the ACA that uh, I think are would be important to try. And it would be, um, I think, a setback to our understanding of the policy options to deal with healthcare costs if if everything was thrown out and we weren't able to implement things like accountable care organizations or other forms of bundled payment that might um, might potentially incentivize higher quality lower or lower cost or both uh, by physicians. So, I mean, given that almost everybody agrees that healthcare in the country is too expensive and getting more so every year, plus it doesn't cover, as you said, I mean, I think it was said 50 million people. I mean, what would be one thing that we could do to tackle rising healthcare costs? I mean, is there something, particularly maybe something that's not in the act that you could see that would probably make a big dif- make a big difference or an impact? Well, I mean, I think there are there are features of a, of very important issues in the act. You know, there is an important thing to remember is that we get a lot for what we spend. Um, so we live longer and healthier lives today than we did in the 60s. Um, and we spend more on healthcare, and and on average, we may be very willing to have made that trade-off. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that healthcare cost is not eating up a larger and larger share of GDP. Uh, and in fact, we can observe there are very wasteful things. So the question, of course, is uh, can we sort of have our cake and eat it too? That is, can we cut back the wasteful stuff without really undermining those incentives that ultimately I think we all value for ourselves, for our families, that you can go into the hospital and get treated uh, effectively for things that you couldn't have been treated for even 10 years ago now. Uh, and, and you know, most of what's driving cost growth is those new, are those new technologies, are those new treatments. Um, and one important feature there is potentially aligning the incentives of providers uh, to provide high-quality, low-cost care and not to be rewarded for providing just the most intensive care but arguably the uh, care that provides gains in health while uh, not incentivizing additional technologies uh, or di- additional uh, intensive procedures. And there are features in the, in the ACA that are intended to at least address this in some degree within Medicare, which is kind of thinking about bundling payment or accountable care organizations, which I think are at least steps in the right direction. Um, and that is to say, if you are giving physicians basically strong incentives to reduce cost, but the key feature that I think is unique and potentially positions us well is that today, as opposed to say when managed care was was first really on the rise, say in the early 90s, is that we have um, substantial expansions in healthcare information technology and the ability to actually measure quality and quality of care in a lot a lot of different conditions. Not all conditions. It can be very challenging, much more effectively than we have been able to in the past. Um, and so if you combine you know, potentially strong incentives to lower cost with uh, very strong incentives to provide high quality care, the confluence of those two things is potentially a powerful mechanism uh, to really kind of align incentives to, to approximate kind of what we would think the market would, would offer. You know, if I go and buy something at the store, say I go buy breakfast cereal, we're not concerned about um, you know, uh, me making the wrong decisions or my decisions not reflecting sort of some optimum. Whereas in, in healthcare, the information problems, you know, the, namely that I don't know what I need and I'm relying on a physician to both inform me uh, as well as sell me those goods and services is, is a problematic. And then they're being paid by an outside, you know, a third party. Um, there is an argument that with information technology and with new incentive models, we might be able to actually at least begin to approximate the appropriate incentives and try to cut out um, those sort of marginal services, which are of low value, 
while leaving intact the fact that we do like, I think in general, you know, the Hospital University of Pennsylvania is right there. I like the fact that I can go to HUP if I get very sick, and I think most Americans do on average. Um, so trying to align those incentives while, while keeping intact what we have that's functioning quite well, uh, I think those mechanisms and the combination of IT and incentives might be able to, to accomplish that. Now, I mean, you've done um, studied extensively healthcare reform in Massachusetts. I mean, can you say, I mean, is there any, any initiative there, any lesson learned there, even other places that you think could be really impactful for, at the federal level for us to consider? Absolutely. I mean, I think there's an, a number of, of uh, interesting lessons in Massachusetts, and some of them are ongoing. So in many ways, Massachusetts was focused on kind of the former piece we were talking about, which is Massachusetts was largely about insurance, and the ACA is largely about insurance. Um, Massachusetts is now um, beginning to think about some ways to potentially tackle the cost growth. Uh, and the fact that Massachusetts has had cost growth, and in fact has had cost growth that has exceeded other states before their reform and after their reform. So um, I think there's there will be interesting uh, lessons coming out of Massachusetts there, but certainly from the perspective of the individual mandate, the employer uh, mandate, and uh, subsidized care, the, the mechanisms in Massachusetts mimic very closely um, the, the sort of key structures of the ACA, depending on what the Supreme Court does. And I think you know, there's a couple important lessons. First is there is a fair amount of evidence from Massachusetts that basically the provision of insurance to the new, you know, basically six percentage points new people, you know, of the population gained health insurance as a result of the reform. And there was evidence that basically they were using the emergency room less, both for outpatient visits and visits that eventually resulted in the inpatient uh, in, in inpatient admission. Um, there was also some evidence that they were basically getting access to outpatient care that could prevent hospitalizations. That's a little more mixed, but certainly some initial evidence for that. Um, and so I think there are some, some early signs that, that, given our system, providing access to insurance can actually make a more efficient delivery of health care and potentially maybe lower cost, but certainly improved health, which is of great value. Um, so that's, that's I think, a, a, an uh, optimistic uh, lesson from Massachusetts. The other um, big lesson relates to the function of the insurance market. And as I was saying earlier, you know, we've done some work and there is some evidence that when you implemented the individual mandate on top of an insurance market which had community rating and guaranteed issue, you did find that the new enrollees were differentially healthier, at least on hospital costs, than the prior enrollees. And that is suggestive of um, some degree of adverse selection in the, adver in the absence of an individual mandate. And it does suggest that's an important aspect. Now, of course, Massachusetts overall insurance market was functioning reasonably well, but their individual market uh, was very, very expensive prior to the individual mandate and was not functioning very effectively. So I think the individual mandate could be quite key if you really think we're going to rely on exchanges and acquisition of individual health insurance to facilitate expansions and coverage. Now, the other lesson from Massachusetts is, in fact, that when, you, when they did implement the reform, about half of the newly insured gained coverage through their employer. And so that is, I think, uh, not as consistent with a lot of the kind of projections for national reform, but I think that, that some of those projections are missing this underlying feature which I was talking about earlier, which is people value health insurance. You know, even if you don't take it up, you don't think of it as something that's totally worthless. And so when you implement an individual mandate, in some ways that just augments the underlying valuation. And if, in fact, your employer can be, you know, is providing you a benefit that you see as, uh, as something that you is well matched to you and something you value, then the combination of your value for health insurance and the individual mandate can actually be a powerful incentive to get people to take up their existing employer-sponsored health insurance. And that seems to have happened in Massachusetts. So in some recent work we've done, we found that the newly insured in Massachusetts were willing to accept uh, wage reductions on, the, on an average of $6,000 per year to gain employer-sponsored health insurance. And that accords almost exactly with the cost to their employer of providing that insurance. So implicitly, that basically suggests that they, the combination of their underlying value and the, and the individual mandate that induces evaluation led them to basically value the health insurance benefits they received almost fully. And that made it an incredibly efficient mechanism to expand health insurance, because effectively, they were able to, to piggyback on the existing infrastructure expand coverage to that additional population, uh, and distort the labor market uh, very, very, very minimally. Um, and so I think there are some lessons that um, suggest that this can be a very efficient tool. And so I think 
you know, there's obviously legal questions which are critical uh, in, in determining, you know, the Supreme Court is focused on. But from an economic perspective and a policy perspective, I think it would be um, a major setback if we lose this tool as a, as a mechanism for, for public policy as well as kind of uh, undermine what is, you know, a big step forward in terms of health policy. We've been trying for 100 years to have some sort of comprehensive form of coverage. And I think uh, we are uh, relatively close at this point, and there is some evidence from Massachusetts that this could be an effective middle-of-the-road way to do it. Knowledge at Wharton talked with Wharton professor Mark Pauley. As, as we all know, the U.S. Supreme Court has recently heard arguments both for and against President Obama's health care reform initiative, known as the Affordable Care Act. Um, I guess one of the provisions of this that's sort of gotten a lot of the attention, particularly in the in the court case, is the individual mandate, which requires all adults to buy health insurance either through their employers or by buying it themselves. So can you talk to me about, I mean, what are your feelings about the provision as it stands in this act? And I mean, are you in favor of it and why or why not? See, yeah, well, first of all, in the spirit of division of labor, I need to say that uh, the, the primary arguments for and against the individual mandate are lawyer arguments, not economist arguments. So I'm going to speak about it as an economist. But the key issues that I think were debated before the Supreme Court, like does is it constitutional to affirmatively make a person buy something or is it how far does the interstate commerce clause extend? Um, I'm not an expert on that. Uh, There are, though, two reasons, two good reasons to have uh, the individual mandate in any kind of um, health reform legislation. Uh, The one which has gotten the most discussion recently is um, is, uh, kind of as a – uh, 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 an important, um, whether it's necessary or not, we could debate, but an important adjunct of a provision of the legislation which essentially says uh, insurers um, have to charge everybody the same premium uh, no matter what the risk level. And uh, the problem with that, of course, is that if you're an average person, and the av- this is not some kind of reverse Lake Wobegon where we're all sicker than average, the average person is reasonably healthy. If the premium is high enough to cover the cost of the uh, c- people with chronic conditions, it'll look like a bad deal to a lot of um, of those people, and uh, so you you need, uh, in a way, some muscle uh, to tell them you have to buy the insurance anyway, even though it doesn't sound like such a good deal to you. Uh, so that's one reason. The other reason, which was actually more important when we first considered this 20 years ago, essentially arises because even if you were an average risk person and the premiums were tailored to your risk, well, I don't know about you or me, but we know that mm, somewhere between 3 and 4% of people just don't get the idea that they ought to have insurance. Uh, and we know that when they're offered a really good deal as part of their job, they only have to pay a few hundred dollars a month. There still will be um, uh, 3 or 4% of workers who will turn it down and not get insurance anywhere. Uh, and that uh, Why are they doing that? Well, one reason probably is um, – Unlike me, they don't get up every morning and think about health insurance. They think they're healthy, and uh, why buy insurance if you're healthy? And there's also the view that, uh, well, if I get really sick, no, there, nobody's going to leave me bleeding in the street. And in fact, federal law requires you to be treated uh, at an emergency room and stabilized regardless of your ability to pay. And so uh, people will rely on, in a way, on the charity of others uh, to compensate for the fact that they don't have insurance. It's still, I tell people, it's still a terribly bad idea to run around without health insurance no matter what you are and no matter how much you count on charity. But the one good feature of charity is at least it's cheap if you're the object of charity. So we actually, uh, we originally called our proposal a proposal for responsible national health insurance because we thought that it was important to have a mandate in a way to deal with irresponsible behavior on the part, I have to say, of a small minority of the population, uh, surprisingly not necessarily the poorest people, uh, just the people who don't have the idea that they need insurance. Uh, they, 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 uh, the non-poor uninsured tend to be people who don't buy other kinds of insurance. They don't have life insurance either. They don't have insurance on their cars. They live from paycheck to paycheck. They're maxed out on their credit cards even if they have a pretty decent income. And so and, uh, since the challenge at that time was to come up with a plan to get universal health insurance coverage, 
we thought that it was important to have a mandate to kind of round up the stragglers. Mm-hmm. Now, there's so much, I mean, there's so many other provisions to this law besides the individual yeah. mandate. I mean, can you tell me, I mean, what is your opinion of this act overall? And what do you think the impact would be, I mean, if the Supreme Court strikes down the individual mandate or if it strikes down the whole law, yep. what, what is the impact yeah, on Yeah, so I'm really worried, actually, that um, the good, there's some really good parts to the law. And um, in some ways, um, the, the uh, features that, that, that are around the individual mandate, uh, because they were put in there, run the risk of bringing down the whole edifice. So the part that, at least in my opinion, is very desirable is a part that's actually not been very much discussed. The law is going to provide hundreds of billions of dollars worth of subsidies to not just to poor people, but to lower middle income people to help them afford health insurance. And I guess my view is as a, as a human being and as a moral person, uh, I think it's um, just um, uh, socially undesirable and morally undesirable for people to go without highly beneficial care when it exists, and um, and and the most of the heavy lifting in the in the law to get people insured comes not from the individual mandate really, but from the fact that if you can't afford insurance, the government's going to step in and and really give you major help to afford it. Uh, the, the, as I said, the, the mandate mostly just kind of rounds up the, uh, the people who aren't persuaded enough by an enormous subsidy that they ought to go ahead and get insurance. So uh, that part, uh, in a way, uh, what I call paying higher taxes in order to have a clean conscience is, in my view, the most important part of legislation. And it would be a real uh, tragedy, I think, if all the other things that were added onto it for various reasons kind of brought down the main uh, objective. And now, I mean, if the I mean, if the court strikes down part of the law or all of the law, I mean, what is the impact on businesses? What is the impact on consumers? And I mean, is there a way that you see that Congress and the administration could kind of come together and come up with something that might be able to stick that everybody could agree on? Oh, I I think my view is, but I think I'm not the only person that there are a lot. If if we could just fix some things. Uh, we could have something that would make sense. Uh, uh, there's, of course, a political choice, whether you think the best way to fix it is to throw the whole thing out and start over. I hope still retaining uh, generous subsidies to the people who need help to buy health insurance, or whether you think you could somehow uh, adjust a bunch of the other provisions of the law in order to make it possible to do that. That's kind of a political choice. Um, I think uh, you know, the, if, if the centerpiece of the law is the subsidies, I think it's certainly possible to design the other parts of it to um, do two things. One is just be much simpler. Uh, the problem was, uh, as you can imagine, it's after all, it's our elected representatives in Congress. They hung all sorts of things in, on the legislation that have little to do with the uninsured and a lot to do with uh, various crusades that they might be engaging in. And, uh, and that complication, I think, has just been uh, very harmful to, the, uh, to generating support for the law. It's just gotten so complicated. And then there, there is one thing in the law that's related to the mandate that I think could have been done a lot better, and that kind of gets back to the point I was making a few minutes ago. The purpose of the mandate is to force people who are relatively low risk uh, to, to pay more for their insurance. Uh, well, why do we want to do that? Well, there is a good social reason to do it for people who are unusually high risk, especially if they're not very well off. Um, they can't afford to pay an insurance premium that would reflect their risk. So we want to cross-subsidize them. Uh, the problem, I think, with the way it's in the legislation is uh, it's what I call the dumbest possible way to do a good thing. We're trying to make a transfer to people who need some help to buy insurance because they're high risk. And the way we, the legislation does it is, in effect, by taxing people who are low risk. And then the people who are low risk don't want to pay the tax. And uh, the alternative, which actually exists in the legislation, is to create a pool for high risks where if you are a high-risk person, you have diabetes, say, or some serious chronic condition, you can go there and buy insurance at reasonable premiums. And the subsidy comes not from making insurance expensive to low risk. It comes from raising taxes the way we usually raise taxes on people based on their ability to pay or at least based on their willingness to pay uh, for uh, to help out others. 
So um, yeah, so so the so the main uh, part I think that that has been uh, harmful here is the um, the way that the the lawyers who drafted the legislation thought uh, that they would help out high risks was by punishing low risks, and I think that was unnecessary. Now, I mean, what would you say? I mean, there's a lot of talk about who is sort of the main culprits with the problems facing the healthcare system, whether it's the insurance companies, the hospitals, the doctors, the government, the consumers. I mean, what do you what do you think? What do yeah. you think of the root of the problem? Well, insurance is? companies certainly were the designated enemies, right? Uh, and uh, and this the, the the sort of populist version even of the requirement that insurers cover high risks at the same premiums is well, they'll how will insurers do that? Well, they'll do that just by taking the money out of their profits. We'll just make them do it. But of course, you can't make insurers really do anything. Uh, they'll turn around and charge the rest of us more, uh, which is um, what probably will happen when um, the uh, if 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 and when community rating uh, and the whether or not it has the individual mandate um, comes into play. Uh, so. So it's it's really hard to kind of stick it to insurers because uh, as long as they have the ability to vary the premiums they charge and the law is not going to take that away, although it does have some provisions that they can't charge unreasonable premiums. But essentially the reason they charge a lot is when they have to pay out a lot. I mean most of the money that goes to insurers comes back to us in the form of uh, health care claims. So, uh, you know, it's uh, certainly – uh, commonplace to quote the horrible figures on the rate of growth in insurance premiums outrunning every other economic aggregate, although lately they've been slowing down a lot and people haven't been breaking out champagne all that much. Maybe they should. But the reason why insurance premiums rise rapidly for the most part is not because they're pocketing a lot more money than they used to. It's because they're paying out a lot more in claims. Why are they paying out a lot more in claims? Well, it's because you and I are going to the doctor not so much more, but to get more done at a higher price sometimes. Uh, and um, so, yeah, the main culprit for high health care costs in the U.S., it's easy, they're easy, it's easy to find that person, uh, find a mirror and look in it. And that'll be uh, one of the reasons why health care costs are high. Mm -hmm. And now, I mean, tell me, I mean, what would you say would be the one thing that we should do to tackle rising health care costs? I mean, can you point, and can you point yeah, to initiatives so the, the Economist Party line here is to say that the most serious um, impediment to uh, an economically efficient health care system is, of course, connected with health insurance. And the most serious impediment there is uh, there is a substantial tax break that goes to uh, that, that's generated if you get your insurance through your job, like all of us do, or almost all of us do, all but about six uh, percent of the privately insured get insurance through their job. And the beauty part of it is, uh, from the point of view of, uh, of, of an individual, is um, well, so Penn pays uh, 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 or is able to uh, make payments toward my health insurance in such a way I figure to shield about $18,000 worth of income for me from taxes. Uh, my wife says we should send a Christmas card to the Treasury thanking them for that tax break. But the, the consequence of it is, in part, uh, uh, that, uh, that I'm less uh, parsimonious than I might otherwise be in choosing insurance and in choosing health care because, in effect, the Treasury is sharing the cost. And this, this tax break, of course, it's a middle-class tax break, so people who are mostly middle-class don't see what's wrong with it. Uh, but it has the consequence of, uh, of providing a, 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 a pretty strong incentive for ordinary Americans not to be as careful about health care costs as they should be. And now very quickly, I mean, are there any initiatives going on anywhere that you could see that, would, that are in progress that would work well? I mean, a model that... that well, so a little bit of uh, uh, it actually surprised me and pleased me. Uh, there is in the legislation a provision not to take effect until 2018, but a provision to try to um, 
uh, take away the subsidy to employment-based health insurance for high, very high-cost employment-based health insurance, the so-called Cadillac tax. Uh, now, they didn't do it the right way. What they should have done was said, if you have a health plan that's uh, uh, costing more than $22,000 a year, uh, at least some part of that ought to be treated as part of your taxable income, and th that will make you want to be more careful. Instead, partly for appearances' sake, they imposed a tax on insurance companies, but of course, the insurance companies won't pay that tax. They'll shift it back to the employers, and the employers will probably shift it back to us in the form of lower raises than we would otherwise get. So that was a good thing, although it's pretty pretty small and pretty long delayed. So if I were to rewrite things, I'd say give that a lot more muscle, uh, make it a lot more rational, and move it up in time. And that's essentially what the two uh, deficit reduction committees uh, the, uh, proposed uh, to the Congress as, and to the president as well to change the tax treatment of employment-based health insurance. So that would be my main thing. Uh, uh, certainly, uh, if you could make – this is sort of a necessary condition, I think, for people to really care about the cost of health care personally as opposed to being outraged about it generally. But if people did care more about their own personal cost of health care, then I think other things like better information about where can I get a reasonably good deal on health care would be something people would pay a lot more attention to than they do now. Knowledge at Wharton talked with Wharton professor Arnold Rosoff. As we all know, the U.S. Supreme Court has recently heard arguments both for and against President Obama's health care reform initiative, known as the Affordable Care Act. Um, one of the key provisions at the center of the court case is what's known as the individual mandate. So could you talk to us a little bit about, I mean, what are your views on the individual mandate in its current form? Would you say you're for it or against it? I think the individual mandate was as good a solution politically to getting the law passed as they could have come up with. If it was possible to start with a clean sheet of paper, I wouldn't have used the individual mandate. But the individual mandate, and I know you've talked to Professor Pauley about this, was a Republican idea. Uh, and as part of President Obama's and his, um, the proponents of the law's compromise, they reached across the aisle, took a Republican idea, came from the Heritage Foundation initially, was endorsed early on by Newt Gingrich, was adopted in Massachusetts and in Romney care. Um, I think they thought that was a big step towards the compromise that had to be necessary to get a universal health care law passed. Um, so given the political realities, I think the mandate was a, a decently good way to go about it. Uh, it turns out now that doing it that way exposes the law to some very significant constitutional challenge, uh, which it seems everybody underestimated while the law was being considered, when it was first being passed. When, after it was first passed, uh, I don't think anybody felt that the legal challenges were going to be taken as seriously as they are. Um, but the mandate may bring the whole law down, may very well bring the whole law down. Like I said, if I started from a clean sheet of paper, I would do it differently. I would do it as a tax, which probably makes it clearly constitutional beyond challenge, uh, and a voucher system. Everybody in the country would have to um, have money deducted from their paycheck, just like they do for Social Security, just like they do for Medicare. And in return for that, you'd get a voucher that would enable you to go out and buy health care. Um, maybe you could buy it from a governmental entity like Medicare, but I think this being America, you'd be able to buy it from private vendors. And if it was structured that way, I don't think there'd be any constitutional infirmity to it. Now, I mean, this is a very complicated multi-part law overall, so can you talk to me a little bit about, I mean, overall, I mean, what are your views on the different provisions of the Affordable Care Act? Our health care system in this country is so complex and is so distorted in the way it's set up that it requires reform from top to bottom. I mean, more people who go into medicine go into uh, high-priced um, surgical subspecialties and other subspecialties than primary care. That needs to be changed. Uh, the health insurance provisions where people with pre-existing conditions aren't allowed to buy insurance or where your rates go up astronomically uh, if you use health care. Um, these, are, these are very bad things. So it requires A to Z reform. And the law got to be 2,700 
pages in bill form. They, they keep talking about the law being over 2,000 pages. The law, I think, actually only comes out to 975 pages. Oh. But the bill was 2,700 pages. And if you look at that bill, there's only a few paragraphs that deal with the mandate. Uh, notwithstanding that, the mandate is the centerpiece of legislation. Uh, and there are many other things, particularly all of the health insurance reforms, that are, um, one could well argue, inextricably intertwined with it. Uh, on the insurance industry side, what the in health insurers gave up was the right to exclude people who looked like they'd need too much health care, or the right to kick people out of their policies if they used too much health care. Uh, the insurance companies accepted community ratings so that they couldn't charge you an exorbitant premium if you needed more health care. Um, those are all difficult pills for the insurance industry to swallow. And what they insisted on in return was an individual mandate or some kind of mandate so that everybody would get into the game. Otherwise, they said they'd be eaten alive by adverse selection. People who considered themselves healthy would stay out until they needed health care, and then they would come in and they would be able to insist, because of the provisions of the law, that they be insured at that point. It would be like a, a homeowner coming running into a, a homeowner's insurance company saying, sign me up quick, my house is on fire. Um, and so the mandate was put in as the quid pro quo, the negotiated um, deal to get those other patient protections. So, I mean, if the court strikes down the individual mandate or even the whole Affordable Care Act, I mean, what does this mean for health care going forward? Well, before I answer that question, let, let me deal with the first part of what you said. If the court strikes down the mandate, which I sat in on the arguments, I listened to the judge's questions and I've read a lot of analyses since then, I think there's a pretty good chance they'll strike down the mandate. The other question then that becomes very important is will they strike down the whole law? Um, there is a long-standing constitutional principle in favor of constitutionality, presumption of constitutionality. The court has to show allegiance to the Constitution. So if Congress puts something in a law that's unconstitutional, the court has no choice but to take that out. But everything else in the law that's constitutional, they should leave in as a part of the separation of powers, the respect of uh, democratic majority. I don't mean Democrat versus Republican. I mean representative of democracy. Um, so there's so much else in the law that they could keep in place. But they would have to be able to decide what stays and what goes. And in the one and a half hours of oral argument over severability, um, the justices made it clear that they didn't have much of a clue where to begin in deciding what stays and what goes. Uh, Justice Scalia, and uh, this is a little bit of a mischaracterization, but other justices, uh, I guess it was uh, Justice Kagan, uh, quipped that it would be too difficult for Justice Scalia's law clerks to have to go through the whole 2,700 pages of the bill and figure out what stays and what goes. They'd probably throw it all out. Well. If the court is supposed to keep as much of the law as it can and they throw it all out, that would throw it back to Congress to say, if you want all these other provisions, let me tell you what some of the other provisions are, things that have nothing to do with the mandate, like nutritional labeling. You go into a McDonald's, it tells you how much a Big Mac uh, has by way of calories. Um, other things, loan forgiveness for people's medical school loans if they go into primary care or go to work in an underserved area has nothing to do with the individual mandate. Funding for black lung disease, for research into cancer and things of that nature, those things don't have to go just because the mandate goes. But for the Supreme Court to sit down there and try to figure out provision by provision with hundreds of provisions, what is tied and what isn't tied, what Congress would have intended to have if it didn't have the mandate, that's pretty much a legislative function. And so the court can say, we don't want to wade too far into the Congress's legislative function. Which is, which is respecting Congress more? Uh, to say, we're going to leave as much of your work intact, we're going to take it all out. Or on the other side saying, we, the court, are going to try to decide what you wanted to leave in and what you wanted to take out. Both of them are an encroachment upon congressional legislative 
domain, and which is the greater? One of the justices asked that question. Now, but do you feel like, I mean, can, without the individual mandate, I mean, can, what would have to happen, if, if that is thrown out, I mean, what would have to happen in order to sort of keep some of the intents of the law intact? I mean, do you think the majority of it can move forward, or are there certain things that the administration or Congress would have to go back and do? And if so, what, what would they have to do? Or what would you let's, advise they do? Let's imagine another, an alternative universe, where the Congress is bipartisan or nonpartisan and functional, um, and the court took out an important piece of their legislation, and there were many other pieces that were unconnected. The day after the court did that, Congress could meet in session and say, let's put back these 200 provisions or 300 provisions and so forth. The concept that our Congress at this point in time, given how fractious and divided they are, would do that is ridiculous. So at one point in the, in the argument in the Supreme Court, one of the attorneys for the government was talking about the court's um, job being to ascertain the will of Congress. What would Congress want us to do in terms of keeping the rest of the law intact? And Justice Kennedy, who's really going to be the decider here because you've got the four liberal justices and the four conservative justices and Kennedy's a swing justice. I predict what happens with the mandate, by the way, will happen with a five to four vote. Very dangerous to make a prediction. I shouldn't do it, but do it. Anyway, what Kennedy said was, um, is that the real Congress or a hypothetical Congress? Because a, a hypothetical Congress, the day after the court struck down the whole law, would meet and they'd put back in all the parts that weren't controversial. But every part's controversial now because politics makes everything controversial. That's a very, very long-winded way of saying I can't answer your question. No, that that is actually very helpful. I mean, so the, I mean, given that environment, and I think most people would agree that you are correct in characterizing that environment. I mean, what would you say is sort of one thing that should be done to help tackle all of the problems with the American healthcare system? I mean, is there one? I mean, can you? I know there's probably a lot of things, but can you think of one thing that if in the hype in that hypothetical Congress, or if there was a hypothetically could get done right away that would make a big help? What would you say it would be? Replace all the congressmen, Congress people. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't know. Um, I don't think it's likely to happen at this point in time. I'm not sure it'll happen in my lifetime. But one of the things that could happen is that the American public, realizing the need for universal health care and realizing that we've gone down a, a dysfunctional road in relying to the extent that we have on for-profit health care, uh, will say, okay, let's just wipe it all out, start with a clean sheet of paper, and come up with something like governmental health care, like France has, or like Italy has, or like Britain has. Thing is that none of those countries are just sailing along happily now. Uh, with aging populations, advancing technology, sagging economies, all of the countries that have universal health care in Europe and elsewhere are struggling to maintain that national commitment. I think it's, I think it's a uh, a shame and embarrassment that our country is the only major nation on the face of the planet that hasn't made a national commitment to universal health care. And there are a lot of reasons why we haven't. I don't think it's because Americans are inherently selfish or greedy or whatever, but we've kind of let the system evolve piece by piece by piece over generations, and we've essentially painted ourselves into a corner. And when you ask me, what should we have? I'm not sure how we can get from where we are to where we need to be. When this law was being debated in Congress, you may remember, a lot of people who were against the law made a big point out of the fact that it was over 2,000 pages. Now, why should it be that long? Um, why should it be so long that most of the Congress people say, we haven't read it, our staffs have read it piecemeal? The thing is that we've got a very complex system, or non-system, some would say, and almost every piece of it has to be changed in some way. Um, you can't do that with a 50-page law or a 100-page law. And whether we can get there from where we are now, to anybody's guess. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.